the reason why the Reformation took off and it was so significant was the earthly notion that every single Christian is a sanctified priest in everything that you do, whether it's a, a mom changing poopy diapers or a CEO in their business or a farmer out in the field or a pastor in front of a congregation delivering a sermon, whatever it is, we're all engaged in priestly ministry. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. The story of King David is a remarkable testimony of God's faithfulness to his people Israel. His life and faith journey point us to Christ, who is the promised king that would surpass David and save his people. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning, Gateway. Um, my name is Emily. I've been going to Gateway for the last year and a half, and I have the privilege of serving in the Edge Ministry on Wednesday nights. Um, our text comes to us today from 1 Samuel 3, starting at verse 1. The boy Samuel ministered under the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again, the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. This is the word of the Lord. Last week, we looked at the book of Samuel, and we saw that it opened with Israel desperately searching for a king. God was supposed to be Israel's king, their protector, their provider, their source of safety and security. However, they didn't want to put their trust in a king they could not see. So they wanted to do exactly what all the other surrounding nations were doing. They wanted an earthly king that they could see. A king, they thought, was the key to national security and an improved economy. A king, they thought, would be their source of provision and safety and security and all of those things. That was the golden ticket for Israel to grow and to flourish and to thrive. But they couldn't have been more wrong. More wrong. God will reveal to them that an earthly king, even one as noble as David, could not be their source of identity, couldn't be their source of security, and certainly could not be their source of hope. 
And even David tragically disappoints. So the book of Samuel, it is in your Bible to remind us that we today still need a new king. We need a better king. We need Jesus. And 1 Samuel is a window into a divine reality. In the same way that Israel were putting their trust in other things, in created things, in other human beings, they need to put their trust in God. And in the same way today, we have to put our trust in the King of Kings, the Son of David, Jesus. And so the reason why 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are in your Bible is for you to see with greater clarity and greater texture and color the person of Jesus. And I want you to see that today. We even saw that last week when we looked at the prayer of Hannah. Really interesting, I shared with you that the prayer of Hannah and the prayer of Mary in Luke chapter 2 practically mirror each other. What's all that about? We have a story of two baby boys of Jesus and of Samuel. We have a story of two miraculous births. We have a story of two mothers who give birth prayers and they sing about the hope that they have in God in the midst of the birth of these children. We have a story of two boys who grow up in wisdom and stature and the honor of God's people. And we have a story of two boys who grow up to be prophet, priest, and king. You have to see that Samuel is a stand-in for Jesus. He's a stand-in for Jesus. And so it's not just a story about Samuel. Samuel may have been the child of destiny within this story, but Jesus is the ultimate child of destiny that we all have to see today. So with that backdrop, recognizing that Samuel is a stand-in for Jesus, but also I want you to see Samuel is a stand-in for us. I want you to be thinking about those things as we read through our text this morning, and it will serve us well. So if you got your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 3, starting at verse 1, it says this, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. So remember, Eli, he is the great high priest, Right? Remember that uh, Samuel is the son of Hannah. Hannah makes a covenant with God. If you give me a son, I'll give him to you. And so she dedicates her son by means of what is called a Nazarite vow, which essentially means she puts her son up for adoption to the temple priesthood. And so Eli is the mentor, the guide, the, the father figure, if you will, to Samuel for all the days of his life. And so he serves under Eli in the temple priesthood. He grows up under the direction of Eli. Then it says this in verse 1b. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. Now, there is so much in these two verses that I want to unpack with you. But let me just give you the plain main thing here. You have to remember that it is a dark time in Israel. This passage says the word of the Lord was rare. We read two weeks ago the ending verse of Judges chapter 25 says everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. People are not following God. They're following themselves. They're putting them, their trust in themselves. And so there were not many visions. The word of God was rare. 
And when I was uh, reading in preparation for this series, one of the books that I read is a book called First Samuel for You, written by Tim Chester. If you like to read, I would really encourage you to pick that up and read along with me as we go through this series. But one thing that he noted in that book, which is really interesting to, to look at, he made a connection between the dim eyes of Samuel being a metaphor for the state of Israel. In the same way that uh, Eli can scarcely see physically, we also see that Israel can scarcely see spiritually. I want you to see that both First and Second Samuel are filled with images and pictures and metaphors to help us see with our eyes and hear with our ears what is happening in the unseen realm. This book is filled with it. And here's one such example. And so the, um, one of the causes of the blindness is the state of spiritual leadership in Israel. Last week, we ended with this verse, the Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And I asked you this question, who is Hannah talking about? There is no king. Israel doesn't have a king. And so we noted that, yes, she's probably talking about David, but through the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, she's ultimately talking about Jesus, the coming of Jesus. And then the very next verse introduces the house of Eli. It says this, Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now, a really interesting note here. Last week, we saw Hannah. She was crying in the tabernacle. She's giving all of herself to God. And then Eli comes in and he calls her a Belial. And that's a Hebrew word for a wicked woman or a scoundrel. And then in the very next chapter, here's Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they are being Belials. They are being wicked, worthless scoundrels. Now, here's the really interesting thing. This is a, a note highlighting that up is down and down is up, right is wrong and wrong is right. We have Eli, and he says that Hannah is a Belial, a scoundrel, even though she isn't. And then his own sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they are sons of wickedness, and he will not call them Belials, even though they are. And so, uh, once again, we see that right is wrong, and wrong is right. And see, growing up, I always felt bad for Eli. You know, for everything that happens to him, I'm like, poor guy. And I still do feel that way a little bit. But this helped me see that all too often, we as parents are so blind to the folly of our own children. My kid could never do anything wrong. Yours might, but not mine. No offense, Liam. So we have this idea in our mind that it's so difficult for us to see when our own children are doing something that is in rejection to God's word or they're banging their head on foolishness. And so just very quickly, I want to highlight this to you as parents. Parents, be loving parents to your kids through the tender mercy of loving discipline. The tender mercy of loving discipline. There's a whole sermon there, but we got to keep going. So there's a comparison that's being drawn here between the house of Hannah and her son Samuel and the house of Eli and his sons Hophni and Phinehas. And we're meant to compare and to contrast them. 
And so here's what we see for the next 10 verses and how this all plays out. Look at verse 15. We see that Hophni and Phinehas, they steal food being sacrificed to the Lord. They keep it for themselves. One of the, the vocations of a priest is to represent God's people to God. They've rejected that. And then verse 16, they exploit the people that they're called to serve. And another priestly function is you're supposed to represent God to his people. They've rejected that too. And then we see the low watermark in verse 22 that they're even sleeping with the female volunteers at the tent of meeting. And that last example is the most sad and ironic of them all because Hophni and Phinehas are named after two of the most zealous Israelites in Israel's history. Phinehas in particular is a story from Numbers chapter 25. If you want to look at the context, write that down, read it later. But this is an instance, once again, where the tent of meeting is being treated as a brothel. And Phinehas is so zealous for the Lord that he goes into the tent of meeting, he takes a spear, and he kills the two people in the temple, or in the tent of meeting, because he's so, so zealous for the Lord. And yet, this Phinehas it can't be any more unlike his predecessor. He's not zealous for the Lord. He's zealous for himself. And so here's what we have. We have Eli's sons extorting money. We have them using the choice parts of the sacrifice in order to bless themselves. And we have two men who are using the temple priesthood as a brothel. I think you'll agree with me that this temple priesthood is morally bankrupt. Morally bankrupt. And so God says this to Eli, verse 29. Why do you scorn my sacrifice? Scorn literally means to kick. It's kind of like Jesus saying, why are you kicking me in the face? Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than you honor me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? And look at what God does next. He doesn't just go after the terrible actions of Hophni and Phinehas. He also goes after the silence of their father, Eli. And so again, there's something here that we can learn from this. I didn't put it in your note sheet, but just take note of this in your minds. That it's not just immorality that God goes after. What about us being complicit in things just by being silent? Just by saying, you know, I, I don't want this to any, in any way, shape, or form to adversely affect me. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do nothing. I'm going to be silent and God says, I'm going after that too, because I have called you to be prophets in my name. I have called you to receive the word of God, to communicate to the word of God, which brings about human flourishing. And when you're silent on things, it has adverse effects on the creation that I made and the people that I love. And so the question we have to ask is, will we be silent like Eli, or will we speak God's word to his people? Will we be silent, or will we speak God's word. And I think that's just really important. Verse 31, it says, the time is coming when I will cut off your priestly house, Eli. Verse 35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and what is in my mind. So in the face of all of this degradation, God's going to raise up a new leader, a better leader, a faithful leader. Now, here's a question. This is not a trick, by the way, but just want to get a show of hands on this. Um, how many of you here think that God is talking about Samuel? Raise your hand. 
There's some nervous people. Okay, like a couple, a smattering. All right, how many of you here think he's talking about David? Anyone? All right, still just a smattering. How many of you here think he's talking about Jesus? <laughs> the Jesus answer always gets more hands. Well, here's the good news, class. All y'all are correct. You're all right. He's talking about all of these things all at once. And we have to see that, and that brings us back to chapter 3, verse 3. So it's a spiritually dark time in Israel, but, verse 3, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. That's good news. That means there's still hope. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Verse 2, where is Eli lying down? In his own place. Where's Samuel lying down? At the ark of God, where the kabod, the glory of God dwells. He wants to be wherever the glory of God is. And Eli's in his own place. Once again, see the comparison. See the contrast of the narrative that the author wants you to see. And then it leads to what uh, Emily has read for us already. Look at verse 19. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up. He let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. That's the vocation of a prophet. And all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet to the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. So here's what I shared with you already, that Samuel is a stand-in for Jesus. We have to see that. But also, Samuel is a stand-in for all of us. For every person who bears the name of Jesus, Samuel is doing things and acting and conducting himself in a way that God wants us to do as well. And we got to see that. And so here, here's what I, I would like to do. Um, I'd, I'd like to get a little bit of crowd participation one more time here, and I promise I'm not trying to trick you or anything, but here's, here are the questions. By a show of hands, how many of you here are baptized? Look at all those hands. That's awesome. A lot of baptized people. Just a note here, if you have not been baptized and you would like to do that, we have a baptism service coming up in a few weeks. Come talk to us. We'd love to walk with you in that journey. Second question, how many of you, by a show of hands, are elders, deacons, or pastors, office bearers in the church? How many of you? Okay, we got a smattering here of our council members. Excellent. Last question, how many of you, by a show of hands, are priests? Oh, I love that. Look at that. So many hands. You people are awesome. I love that. So here, some of you haven't raised your hands maybe because you haven't been around for a while and you haven't heard me harp on this, but uh, I'm going to harp on it a little bit today that we see even through the hands there were so many baptized, but there were fewer priests. So when you think of the word priest, what do you often think of? Maybe you think of a Catholic priest. Maybe you think about a vocational minister or an elder or a pastor or something like that. And yet, what we see in the New Testament repeatedly is that the word priest is always used in one of two ways. Number one, in reference to Jesus, the great high priest. And number two, in reference to all y'all, to Christians, exclusively. Isn't that interesting? Every single Christian is a sanctified priest. Let me just give you two examples of this. Revelation chapter 1 says this. To him who loved us and freed us from our sin by his blood and made us to be known to be a kingdom of what? What's the word? Priests 
serving his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal, what's the word? priesthood, that's right, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. That's 1 Samuel chapter 3 verse 1. The word of the Lord is rare. Eli's running away from the temple. He's in his own place and into his marvelous light. That's chapter 3 verse 3. The light has not yet gone out and Samuel is in the ark of, the, of meeting, the place of meeting. We have to see these images coming alive. So in other words, everyone's a priest. Every Christian is a sanctified priest. And so if you've ever seen that, uh, that old Oprah TV show, you know, remember when she gives everyone a car? Do you remember that? She says, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car, you all get a brand new car. And they all just like flip out and go crazy, right? Here's, here's what God is saying to you. You're a priest, 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 you're a priest. You're all sanctified priests. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you have been called to be representatives of God in the world that he loves. Vice regents of God in the world that he loves. That is the way that God has created his world. So here's the plain main thing, friends. Don't miss this. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God says this. God has a vision for all of his people to be a nation of spirit-filled priests in the world. And this little story in Samuel is meant to reveal two things, both God's original design for all of his people and also the disobedience of God's people to live into that calling. It's meant to be both of those things for us today. So let me show you this. All the way back in Genesis chapter 1, we see God's divine mandate in chapter 1 verse 28. It says this, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, and then rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So they're called to rule, that's royal language, they're also called to subdue. That's priestly language. That they are called to be vice regents in the world that God loves. That we are to bring shalom, peace, justice, harmony to a world that God loves. And to the people that he loves. That they would see the creator of the universe, the love of God through you. Through the way that you interact with his creation. And through the way that you interact with people who are made in God's image, and that's everybody. That's the mandate. But then, of course, we know how Genesis 3 comes along, and we have the fall, and they leave the garden, and yet God doesn't give up on his mandate. He doesn't say, oh, well, and then try a different path. And we see this in Genesis chapter 14, where we come along with a guy named Melchizedek, and he is the first person who's mentioned as a priest king. He's a royal priest. And then he serves Abraham both bread and wine, the same images and metaphors that are all tied up into our communion meal that Jesus inaugurates as the new covenant. That in the same way that Abraham was meant to be a blessing to many nations, we today, when we eat of the bread and the wine, it is a sign of God's uh, covenant to us that he is the sacrifice for all of our sins, but it is also a moment where we recognize that God has called us out of darkness and into light and to be his representatives in the world. 
And this is so significant that 33 times in your New Testament, Paul and Peter, the gospel writers, they're constantly talking about the Melchizedek story. Why is that so significant? Because they want you to know this as the plain main thing. One such example is Hebrews chapter 7. It says this, You, dear Christian, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You and I are sanctified priests. So then you might say, okay, Justin, how does that apply to me today? What does that look like for me to be a representative of God? Well, one thing I would like for us to do today is to just very briefly talk about the two myths that are alive and well that keep us from living into this vision. Uh, how many of you have seen that old show, Mythbusters? Remember that? I don't even know if it's on TV anymore, but I, I used to love that. They, they would take some sort of idea that a lot of people believe in, and they try to figure out if it's true, if it's actually working, or if it's a myth. And then they would conduct experiments to try and figure it out. Well, there's two myths that we believe in the church that keep us from being sanctified priests. The first is the holy person myth, and the second is the holy place myth. The holy person myth is the belief that I'm the only priest on campus along with Jason and Jaden and Adam and Marcel. We're the sanctified priests and you're all just secular people and you do your secular things, right? And the holy place myth is the idea that whatever happens in the four walls of this church, that's the holy stuff, but everything that happens outside of the church, that's all secular stuff, right? You can just live your life. As we all know, the glory of God resides here. He just hangs out in this room, and then he kind of turns around Monday through Saturday, and he waits for us to come back. So go live your life, but then come back on Sunday and make sure that you act holy here. And yet, both of those things are myths. We need to bust those myths. So with respect to the holy person myth, here's what I want to propose to you. Every Christian is called to be like Samuel, a royal priest, both prophet, priest, and king. And to say you're a prophet, again, means you listen to the word of God and you speak the word of God. We see that in verse 18. It says this, Samuel told Eli everything and he hid nothing from him. And like Emily read to us, Samuel prophesied that Eli, uh, to Eli that both of his sons would die and that the Ark of the Covenant would be lost. Like, talk about a really difficult first assignment. Even though Eli was complicit in a lot of these things, Samuel loved him. He was the only father figure that he had. I'm sure his biological father came perhaps once a year to the tabernacle to visit his son, along with Hannah. Elkanah and Hannah would probably do it about once a year. But Eli was, was his mentor, his father figure, and he has to tell him everything you love, everything that you care about is going to come to an end because of your foolishness. Could you imagine having to say something like that? And yet here's the plain main thing for you and I. Will we have the courage to speak the truth even if it adversely affects our lives? Even if it harms our reputation? Even if it potentially hurts the person that you care about so deeply as you communicate that truth, will you, like Samuel, speak the truth in love? And Samuel does it, which establishes a really important precedent for the rest of his ministry that he would be faithful to relay what God said no matter how difficult. Here's the question. Will you? Will you? 
I think that's a hard question. And to say that you are a royal priest means that you represent God in the world and that you serve as vice regents in the world that God loves. Do you see yourself that way when you look in the mirror? You say, I am a Christian. I follow Jesus. I represent Jesus everywhere I go. I represent him. I serve him. I speak his word. I do his ministry. Do you see yourself that way on Monday, not just Sunday, and throughout the week? I pray that you do. And so for those of you who know your church history, do you know what today is? We have a Reformation Day coming up in a couple days. Today is Reformation Sunday. I promise I didn't plan this. I just, I love the way that this is kind of working out, that on Reformation Sunday, we landed on this particular passage of Scripture, which, which highlights everything that the Reformation stands for. See, the Reformation, which occurred a little over 500 years ago, a lot of people think that all it was is talking about indulgences or grace versus works or justification, sanctification, the finer points of doctrine. Yeah, all that stuff was important. It was all important. And yet the reason why the Reformation took off and it was so significant was the earthly notion that every single Christian is a sanctified priest, is a priest, that in everything that you do, whether it's a, a mom changing poopy diapers or a custodian moving a mop or a CEO in their business or a farmer out in the field or a pastor in front of a congregation delivering a sermon, whatever it is, we're all engaged in pre priestly ministry. That's scandalous in the 16th century when, the, when the, uh, the Pope is saying, I'm the holy person in the holy place and what you need is my grace. That rhymes. It's so... It's cool. That's, that's what he's trying to communicate here. And yet what we see is scripture rejects that notion. All y'all are priests. Do you know what Jaden prayed for this morning? The gift of the word in your hands. The gift of the word in our hands. That you have the most powerful tool in the universe. Are you using it? Are you reading it? Are you being shaped by it? Or are you being shaped by something else? And so if you look closely at how all of chapter 2 is constructed, it goes back and forth between the actions of Eli's sons, who are Levitical priests, and the actions of Samuel, who is not a Levitical priest. He's a Nazarite, and yet he is called to be a priest. So look at this with me. Verse 11 Chapter 2, verse 11, it says that Samuel ministers. That's what a priest does, right? And then verse 12, Eli's sons, who are priests, they do not minister. Then verse 26, Samuel serves the people, yet another priestly function. Verse 27, Eli's sons reject their calling to serve God's people. So once again, there's this comparison and contrast that the Levitical priesthood is not doing what they're called to do. And Samuel, the Nazarite, is functioning as a priest. And here's the outcome. Verse 34, Eli's house will come to an end. The Levitical priesthood will come to an end. Verse 35, a new priesthood will serve forever. It will never end. And if you are taking notes, consider writing down Hebrews chapter 7 and read that whole chapter as you think about this. And it will come to life in new and vibrant ways. This is to be established forever 
Thousands of years later, we are called to live into this reality as sanctified priests. And so the whole story is pointing to the fact that a new and better priesthood is coming. A new and better prophet is coming. A new and better king is coming. That is the royal priesthood. That's what we're called to be. So then I think there's like a bit of an obvious question at this point that we need to ask ourselves. What happened? Like if God called all of us to function as priests, why did he establish a Levitical priesthood in the first place? You know, why didn't he just do it? From the beginning until now. I love when you ask good questions. Here's what we discover. In Exodus chapter 19, after Israel was delivered from the promised land, they're out in the wilderness, God is establishing a covenant with his people. And he says this in chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. He says, now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of, what's the word? Priests. Not just the Levitical priesthood. All of you are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this, is, this was the desire of God. I want you all to represent me in the world. So what did they do? If you remember the context, Moses, he just came down from Sinai. And he's got, you know, kind of like secondhand smoke. He's got secondhand presence of God. And he's beaming. And they're so fearful. They're like, could you put like one of those cones on your head? Like when a, do a dog gets work done, you know? Like, just, we don't want to see your face. We're so afraid of the holiness of God that's radiating upon you. Could you please cover yourself from that? And also that, that divine mandate that you want us to be priests, uh, we're not all about that. Could you just choose someone else to represent us to God and God? God to us, we'd rather not be that. And so God's acquiescence plan is the Levitical priesthood. The sons of Moses and Aaron, the Levites, they function as priests. And you read about that in Exodus chapter 28. It was not God's plan. He acquiesced to the whining and the complaining of God's people when they said, we're not going to do that. We don't want to function that way. We don't want to represent you. We would much rather have someone else, some holy person, do that work so that we can just live our lives. And I'm telling you, the same thing happens today. The same temptation, friends, is still alive and well today. To have holy people and secular people. Holy places and secular places. And God says, all is holy. And all my people do holy work. And for every single original reader, they're thinking about their Bible. They're thinking about Genesis and Exodus and how they rejected the original plan of God. It also shouldn't be lost on us that Samuel is not a Levite. He's a Nazarite. Here's what's really interesting about that when talking about sacred secular. The Levitical priesthood, there are certain things that they could not do when they were in the tabernacle. For instance, they couldn't drink wine. They couldn't even drink grapes, lest they may have been a little bit fermented. They couldn't touch the dead. There were tons of things that they were not allowed to do when they were functioning as priests in the tabernacle. And yet, if you were a Nazarite, here's the principle, what the high priest couldn't do in the tabernacle, a Nazarite couldn't do anywhere, no matter where they were. So here's the way I put it in your note sheet, friends. 
Every Christian is called to be like Samuel the Nazarite and to treat all of God's world as a holy place. All of God's world as a holy place. The Holy Spirit is with you when you do your taxes. The Holy Spirit is with you as you treat your employees or your employer or your friends or your neighbors or your classmates or your coworkers. The Holy Spirit is with you when you watch television or something online. The Holy Spirit is with you when you have conversations at a coffee shop about other people and you're tempted to triangulate or to gossip. The Holy Spirit is with you wherever you go. In everything that you do, he goes with you. Or better yet, you go with him. He lives inside you. And so the steps that you take, the Holy Spirit says, I'm coming with you in this. And I, I just hope the way that you use your mouth and the way you use your hands and your feet reveals who I am and does not reveal more of your sin nature. That you're living into your calling as sanctified priests. I love the way that Tim Chester puts it. He says, just like Samuel, you are called to be a kingdom of priests, serving God in the world and treating all of life as holy. So look again at verse 35 with me. I want you to see this in a new way now. Now that you know all of that, the history, the context, verse 35 says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I asked you the question, how many of you think about, think that's Samuel and all hands should be raised? How many of you think it should be David? All hands should be raised. How many of you think it's Jesus? All hands should be raised. Here's the last question. How many of you think it's you? All hands should be raised. God is saying Samuel is a stand-in for Jesus. Samuel is a stand-in for you. And for me, God is calling us to live our lives this way too. And because that's true, it should have profound implications for how we live our lives today and what we do and where we go and why we do it. And so with the time we have remaining, I want to give you three takeaways for you to think about both later on today and every day of the week this week and moving forward. Here's the first one priests put their hope in the gospel. So my friends, know this, you have access to God. One of the most important verses in this whole story comes from Eli. In Samuel chapter 2 verse 25, he says this, if one person sins against another, God may mediate for, their, for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? What a question. If you sin against God, who will intercede for you? Who will stand in the gap for you? Who will storm the gates of heaven for you? And I hope you know, friends, I hope you have the eyes to see that the answer to that question is Jesus. Jesus is that person for you. And in reference to that verse, we read Hebrews chapter 7. I mentioned it already. I want you to read the whole chapter later today. It says this, God will raise up a faithful priest who is able to, come to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to, same word, intercede for them. First John 
chapter 1 and chapter 2 says that we have an advocate with the Father in Jesus. He is the propitiation of all our sins. That's a stained glass word, which simply means he is the advocate who appeases the wrath of God. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He is the one who storms heaven's gates, and he appeals on behalf of Justin, on behalf of all of you, so that whenever God looks at us, he doesn't see your foolishness. He doesn't see your sin. He sees the perfection of his son. He sees Jesus because of his sacrifice and not because of anything that you have done. And that's what releases us, friends, to, with the best of our ability and with the help of the Holy Spirit, to function as priests in the world. Not so that you can become more morally righteous so that you can earn your way to heaven. You've already received it through Jesus And so Jesus is saying, now that you know what you know, now that I have paved the way for you, now that you have been set free, I want you to function as sanctified priests. I want you to do my work in the world. Number two, priests are mediators of the gospel, which means two things. You represent God to people, and you represent people to God. Here's how you represent people to God. It's the same way that we saw in Samuel in chapter 2, verse 11. It happens ultimately through prayer, that in the same way that Jesus intercedes for us, that you, friends, can storm the gates of heaven as you pray, as you intercede on behalf of the people that you love, or even the people you don't love very much. And you say, Lord, I ask that you would be with them in what they're struggling with, be with them in their sin, be with them in their agony and their pain and their frustration, be with them in their joy, help them to not idolize the things that God has given them, but to use them as a resource to expand your kingdom, that we are praying on behalf of the people that we love, praying on behalf of God's people. The greatest gift you can give your neighbor is to intercede on their behalf. And the second thing that you can do is you can represent Jesus to people. That's what Samuel did in chapter 2, verse 26. You represent Jesus to them. I've shared this with you before. You might be the only gospel that your friends, your family members, your classmates, your coworkers, your neighbors are going to get this week. You're the only Bible study that they're getting. Will you represent Jesus as you interact with them, as you enter into that space? Will you function as a priest? Number three, priests serve as spiritual sacrifices, which means you minister through your word as you seek to convey God's word, and you minister through your work. Your work. Because all of you are sanctified, holy workers in everything that you do. I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts it in his translation of scripture called the message of Romans chapter 12, verse one. He says this, here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. In other words, just like Martin Luther said in the Reformation, your work your parenting, your relationships, your conversations at coffee shops, etc. All of it is worship. All of it is worship. Do you think about your life in, the, in those ways? Do you treat your conversations in those ways? Knowing that Jesus is always with you.
And so the question I want to ask you is this. Are you living for Jesus? Are you committing your life to Jesus in the way that you live your life, in what you do, what you say, where you go? And to help you with that, I, I want us to think about a very practical question, and then I want to give you a resource, then we're going to close. The practical question is this. How do we recapture God's vision for the local church? How do we champion the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers? Because here's the pinch, friends. Just because we get our theology right doesn't automatically mean we're going to live this out well. We say here at Gateway that we want to be biblically serious, which means we not only want to know our doctrine, we want to live into it, right? It's not just orthodoxy, it's orthopraxy. It's the way we live our lives. Are we living into this reality as sanctified priests in the world? And rather than tell you how we're going to do this better, how we're going to grow in this area, each of you has been given a resource this morning, and it's simply called 10 Ways to Equip the Royal Priesthood. One is home practices, just ideas, and the other one is corporate practices, things you can do in your home, whether you are single or married or you have children, things that you can start to put on to try and shape and model your life, liturgies, practices that inform our perspective. And then the other one is corporate practices. Some of these things we already do at Gateway, others of them we don't. And you might be inspired to say, I think we can do that. I think at church we could do this. And if you are inspired by the Holy Spirit, come talk to us and we'd love to have that conversation. I would love for us to think creatively about how we can grow in living into the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. And so we entrust that to you as a resource to help you grow in this area. So I want to end this morning by reading 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35 one more time. But as we read it, hear yourself in this. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. Well, you've been listening to the latest message in our series through First and Second Samuel, tracing the life of David, the Shadow King. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.